Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast. Your host, Dr. Joe Tata, leads the conversation around the way pain is treated in the U.S. and around the world with experts from the fields of medicine, physical therapy, nutrition, personal development, exercise, psychology, and more. Each week, you can listen to receive free information about ways to treat and reverse chronic persistent pain. Now, here is Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, thank you for joining me for episode number 125 of the Healing Pain Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Today, we are discussing how to translate the rapidly growing body of medical research surrounding pain into clinical practice. Our expert guest this week is Dr. Stephen Camper. He is a clinical researcher with a background in physiotherapy. His PhD was awarded by the Sydney Medical School at the University of Sydney in 2011. He is an associate professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Sydney, where he leads the pediatric theme. He also established and co-leads the Center for Pain, Health, and Lifestyle, a practice research partnership focused on investigating the interaction between pain and broader health risk factors such as obesity, smoking, alcohol misuse, and poor mental health. Dr. Camper has a large and growing body of research. He has published more than 120 articles and has presented his work more than 60 times in over 10 different countries. As a free gift, Dr. Camper has provided two of his most recent research articles, which will help inform what we talk about on today's podcast. The first article is called Musculoskeletal Pain in Children and Adolescents, A Way Forward. This is an update and a fresh perspective about pain in children and adolescents. The second is a paper called Evidence in Practice, a new series for clinicians. This will help practicing physical therapists build expertise in understanding research so they can translate the knowledge into clinical practice. To download these two free papers, all you have to do is text the word 125DOWNLOAD to the number 44222. That's 125DOWNLOAD to the number 44222. Or you can open up a new browser on your computer and you can type in the URL www.drjotata.com forward slash 125 download. That's www.drjotata.com forward slash 125 download. Okay, make sure you take a moment now to either text that or download that information. They're, they're really great articles, especially if you're a practitioner and you want to get a taste of what's up and coming as far as pediatric pain and research. And if you want to learn how to read research so that's easy to integrate into clinical practice. Okay, I'm excited for this podcast. It's really, it's a great one. Stephen is an expert really at research and of course, health and lifestyle as it relates to chronic pain. Okay, let's begin and let's welcome Dr. Stephen Camper. Hey, Steve, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here this week. Thanks so much, Jay. So I know we're going to talk a lot about lots of things today about kids or adolescents with pain. We're going to touch on that topic and we're also going to touch on the importance of translating evidence-based practice or research into clinical care or how it can inform clinical care. But why don't you tell us first how you got started out and how you became interested in pain? All right. Yeah, cool. So I guess I actually being at physio is a second career for me. So I had a, had a bit of an early midlife crisis. I was an environmental scientist originally and I worked in that field for a while. And then I went back and did uh, took a vow of poverty and did an undergraduate degree in physio. Um, and so I guess at that point I was thinking you know, I'll, I'll have a clinical career. During that time, I did some some casual work as a research assistant for, for one of the researchers who was 
also one of the teachers in the program and really enjoyed it and really enjoyed the atmosphere and the environment and the work. And so did that for a, a short period of time, then went out, finished my degree, went out into clinical practice for a bit and sort of after not too long a time, had an opportunity uh, to do a PhD. And so I came back and did a PhD and worked sort of clinically part-time during that period. The research topic on that was on uh, people with whiplash. So I did some early research in, in people with whiplash and the group generally is, I guess, probably best known for work in, in back pain. And so that was sort of also formed part of uh, the stuff that I was interested in and, and the stuff that I did. So, I mean, I, I, I didn't go into it with a, a burning desire to solve the problems of pain in the world. It was sort of, I liked the sort of work we did. It was stimulating and interesting. I liked the environment. I liked the people that we were working with. And that was sort of the work that was being doing. And so, and I guess, I think over time, that's, I think all of us, as you spend a bit of time in your career, you start to think, well, why the hell am I doing? What am I doing? And I think what I guess I've come to at this point is I'm interested in, in trying to understand what happens in the world. And that goes back to the environmental science stuff I was doing as well. I'm interested in the way the world looks and, and that sort of thing. And this is, I see this as an application to people. The other side of it is I'd like to feel like I'm doing something useful. And so working within a, with a goal to making life better with people for particular conditions fits for me. I think I could equally have been happy doing research into diabetes or cancer or brain injury or whatever else. It just happens. This is where I, where I ended up and I enjoy it. So it's yeah. good. And where did you complete your PhD and how long did that take? So I was at the University of Sydney. So it took, uh, it was three and a half years. We did it full time. During that time, the group that I was working with moved from the University of Sydney, the Faculty of Health Sciences, to a medical research institute called the George Institute. So they're uh, an institute which does research into non-communicable diseases in a lot of fields. So they do cardiovascular research, they do injury research, neurological and mental health, food policy, these sort of things. And so our division, our, our group came and formed a, a musculoskeletal health research group within the George Institute. So that's where I did most of my, my PhD work. And then how did you get, because I know you're involved in lifestyle medicine. How did you kind of yeah. segue yeah, so, that from whiplash, to, from PhD in whiplash to lifestyle? Yeah. So after I finished my PhD, I did a postdoc in Amsterdam. So also very much in the MSK pain sort of world and also sort of a, a bit of methodological stuff, sort of understanding measurement, that sort of thing as well. And also some stuff in patient expectations and placebo effects and so on. That time also, I guess any person involved in a research career will tell you after you finish your PhD that the sort of, if you're lucky enough to get a postdoc position somewhere, that's sort of when the pressure comes, go, okay, who, who are you going to be? How are you going to be known as a researcher? And so there's sort of this period where you're going, oh, what am I going to do? Where's my niche? You know, what's, and I guess I spent a couple of years in Amsterdam trying to work that out and to be honest, came up with a few ideas that were sort of not going to work. Towards the end of that, I started to work more closely with a colleague who had done his PhDs a couple of years behind me at the George Institute. He subsequently went and worked for a population health unit in a city about two hours north of Sydney. So he started working sort of the sorts of research they were doing in that unit and the sorts of service that they were providing was very much around population health sort of stuff. So it's around smoking and alcohol use and diet and physical activity and that sort of stuff. So he sort of brought his background in pain research to that environment and we started working quite closely together 
probably about four or five years ago. And yeah, developing sort of, I guess, our ideas as they are, which, and they're certainly not unique ideas, but I think it's what it's given us is a really nice perspective where we have sort of a background and our, and our base in clinical services and understanding pain from a, as it relates to people who are presenting for care with pain conditions. And this idea of, well, what's happening to people in the broader population? Because I think population health and public health services have never really considered pain within their remit. And so I think that that sort of blend of perspectives has really, well, it's really opened up my eyes in, in terms of the, the possibilities to the sorts of things that we might be involved in. Yeah. And just mm. define for us, because I know you, you may mention it again in the podcast, for people who are listening, just define for us the difference between population health versus um, public health? Yeah, it depends who you ask. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially, I guess public health, or one way of defining it, public health might include things which really go way beyond what we might consider of health. So, So we might be considering the effects of social housing on health. We might be considering the effects of education on health, socioeconomic factors more broadly that sort of indirectly affect health. And so that whole, I guess, sphere, it might be defined as as the public health sphere, if you like. Population health services tend to be interventions broadly, uh, which are delivered to people, to the broader population. So that's not people. So that's sort of beyond people who are presenting for care. So that might include things like television ads to encourage people to stop smoking or to use sunscreen or to use condoms or whatever else. Or it might include programs into schools to increase physical activity in the playground or this sort of stuff. So I guess the the idea is that public health might be considered a sort of broad concept within which population health services might be delivered as well. Yeah. So that's one definition that people... No, I think that gets perfect and it gives everyone some some good perspective. So when it comes to public health context, you're you're studying it, um, I guess, with regard to Australia. Yeah, and certainly the in terms of public health, the sorts of factors which might be influential are very different from one place to others. So you're absolutely right. I mean, if I understand where you're going with this, that the sorts of influences on people's health in Australia might be very very different to the people's sorts of influence on people's health in Central Africa or something like this. Yeah, when you when you start talking about Public health, and you were talking about advertising. Advertising can be leveraged for good reasons to educate the broader public, like you mentioned, you yep. know, condom use to prevent HIV, for instance. Or we can use our advertising dollars to broadcast an opioid commercial in the middle of the Super Bowl, which yep. is probably one of the largest events in the world, which may have a benefit for some patients, but yep. uh, may, may, may be adversely beneficial for others. So it's interesting to kind of think about those things. What have you learned about Australia as far as? public health and pain that maybe can apply to other countries. You know, of course, I'm here in the United States, but yeah. um, I think our countries, our countries are similar, although... I agree. Yeah, you guys have pretty good research. And for, you guys are ahead of us as far as pain research goes, I would say. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I, I think one of the key things, and I guess I'd stress as well that this is a relatively new field for me and for Chris Williams that I work most closely with. And so I guess we're finding our ideas developing all the time. But I think one of the things that, that we have become increasingly interested in is this idea of conceptualising pain as a public health or a population health issue. So if we think about the health of the general population, 
and the sorts of things that we might think about in that context. We're very used to or comfortable with the idea of thinking about obesity and cardiovascular risk and smoking and alcohol use and these sorts of things. And we don't think about pain in terms of, of how that sort of affects health more broadly. We think of pain as this specific clinical issue which is attached to a, a certain condition. And so I think one of the things we've become interested in, and I think this is eminently transferable across different contexts and places, is the idea of, well, what does it mean to talk about pain in terms of public health? So we're, And I think that the nice thing is that actually what we think is beneficial in terms of reducing the impact of pain on individuals is probably quite similar for a lot of chronic diseases. So if we think about what we should be doing for to reduce overweight and obesity or what we should be doing to reduce the burden of diabetes or even cancer or whatever else, we need to get people active, we need to reduce anxiety, we need to give people involved in you know, having a good diet and all these sorts of things. And so I think there's real potential value in leveraging. So one of the things we also come to is, is this idea that it's hard to get people to change their behaviour for the good of their health in the long term. Okay, So it's hard to get people to exercise more so they're less likely to have a heart attack in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. Or it's hard to get people to stop smoking so they don't get lung cancer in 30 years' time. We're sort of interested in this idea that perhaps there's something we can leverage about the immediacy of pain to promote behaviour change. At this point, that's an idea that we haven't worked out how to do. But I guess we have this idea that, okay, we think that moving more is likely to, to help the way that you feel, whether that affects your pain intensity as we measure it per se immediately, or whether that makes you feel a bit better about your life in the context of having pain, then we think maybe well, that's maybe a hook that we could potentially use to get people moving more. As I said, the sort of ideas that are relatively new for us that we haven't quite worked out how to do that. It's interesting though, because what you're saying is that the lessons are the same, but the messaging may have to be different for the condition, basically. Absolutely right. Because, like, Absolutely you know, here right. I had the guidelines for physical fitness in the United States of America for years. They pretty much haven't changed much, but they're general guidelines for exercise. Yeah. We may need to figure out ways to deliver them in a different way or in a way that is more exacting for people with pain. Yeah. But I think we also need to think about well, what does the package look like? So exercise is more than just saying, okay, you need to do this sort of activity for this period of time. Why should you do that? Is it going to help me or harm me and, and these sort of things? So I think this is the important element about it is, well, how do we, well, part of it is how do we generate that motivation and address whatever the barriers are to delivering that? Because we know people think, know that exercise is good for them, but most people don't do it. So we're missing something. So there's something between the knowledge and the behaviour. And I suspect that that is something which is, needs to be obviously tailored to, to the individual. But there, I think there's some general things that we can talk about to people who have pain, which maybe make that link. So the other thing about pain, obviously, is from a population perspective, there's lots and lots of people who, who have pain. And, and so the message for so if we're thinking, okay, you need to be more active in order to reduce your risk of heart attack, okay? Someone says, well, okay, but when I go for a run, my knees hurt. So that's a specific barrier, and that's not a small group of people. That's a very large group of people. And so we've got a barrier to physical activity, which we know is beneficial, and that's what we don't address in the population health 
context. So the service or the interventions that are delivered out don't pay any attention to people's pain. And I guess our suspicion is that pain is potentially a barrier to those sort of healthy behaviors for some people. Yeah. Hooking into the behavioral aspects of, of change that's required for people with pain, I know another area of passion of yours is adolescents who have pain or children mm-hmm. who have pain and starting to look into that because we don't have a large body of research around that. Tell us where, like give us a kind of where are we currently with children and pain? Yeah, okay. Look, I think this is an interesting area for me. And as you say, particularly because there's just not much out there. And from a purely, purely pragmatic perspective, from my point of view as a researcher, I need to find a niche. And so areas which are a problem, which we think is a problem and don't have much research in and make fertile ground for research niches. So there's some practical reasons why I might be interested in this sort of thing. The other thing, I mean, I guess the other, there's a couple of good reasons why I think it's a good place to be researching also. One is that for musculoskeletal pain, particularly the sorts of things which have a big burden and sort of back pain and neck pain, this sort of stuff, particularly or where my background is anyway, the most consistent risk factor that comes up is having had a previous episode. And so if we're really going to understand something about prevention or even something about the pathology, I think we need to start looking earlier on. And so that gives us a reason to be thinking earlier on. The other thing which I think is relevant is, well, there's also some data which suggests that having persistent pain as an adolescent makes you at higher risk of persistent pain as an adult. We don't know the nature of why that might be or whether that's confounded or whatever else it is. But again, it suggests it's a good place to be looking. Another thing is just the prevalence of pain during that adolescent period. So things like back pain and neck pain go from tiny, insignificant sort of um, figures in terms of the prevalence in children sort of under 10, 11, this sort of age. By the time they reach the end of adolescence, those prevalence that's starting to get look like adult figures. Mm-hmm. So we have this massive rise through adolescence and we have no idea what is going on there. So why is that happening? And so, again, in terms of understanding these conditions, which have a huge, we're associated with a huge burden societally and individually throughout the lifespan, again, it just points to the idea that it seems like a good place to go looking for or, or to, to try and develop our understanding about what's going on. So, yeah, that's, and the other thing is that because there's no research in this area, what do we tell parents to do and how do we help? How do clinicians know what to do? How do, well, not know what to do, but what, there's very little information being fed in to those groups of people and, and obviously the young people themselves as to what they should do. So, again, I think there's a whole host of reasons why it's a, a good place to be looking at, at pain. Yeah. So for, yeah. what you're saying is for, for many adolescents, we can start to figure out where we can put a detour sign so that if they have start to develop pain in adolescence, that doesn't yep. continue into early adulthood and that might be the prime time. For sure, yeah. And, and I think there's an even more immediate issue is we don't know who to be worried about. So it's, it's very likely that for the majority of adolescents who experience pain, it's just going to go away and it's not going to be a great problem for them. Maybe it, they limp around or they're a bit sore for a couple of days or, or whatever else, but it goes away and it doesn't have a significant impact. They don't need care and, and whatever else. But for uh, another group and a, probably a, I'd call it a, a we suspect a substantial but still quite a minority, 
you know, there's, they may be missing school, they may be taking medication, they may have to seek care, they may be missing out on sport and leisure activities, they may not be able to socialise, these sort of things. I think it's undeniable that all these things are really important to development of, well, people generally, but developmentally they're important for adolescents as well. And so, but the point is that we don't know how to pick one from the other. And so if someone, you know, lobs up to care to a physio or to a doctor or to a chiropractor or an osteopath or whatever and says, my back hurts and it's hurt for two or three days, we don't know whether to, to say, you know what, you're going to be fine, it's going to settle down, do this, do that, but don't worry about it, or this is something we need to do, quite apart from the fact that we don't know what the thing that we need to do is. But I think that's a really important thing because the last thing not the last thing. One of the things we don't want to do is put people in care who don't need it. The only thing we can do then is stuff them up. And so we don't want people who are going to get better anyway in front of healthcare professionals. We don't want people in the system, in a healthcare system that, that don't need to be there. And so, we, we and, and as I said, at this point in time, I don't think we have any good information to know who is who. Interesting. So we don't know, for instance, if if a teen develops low back pain, that early physical therapy might prevent that from progressing. We don't have that information yet. No, no, we don't. And as I said, I would suspect some of them are going to get better anyway, or most of them are probably going to get better anyway, and some of them are going to need something more. I think the first thing we need to work out is who's who and make sure for those ones who are going to get better anyway, they're given some reassurance and given some support and their parents are given some reassurance and support that you know and and again this is where we feed feed into the the broader understanding of what pain is and how it works in the in the population hopefully their teachers understand that you know this is going to be okay and they're going to be all right and 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 when they need to need more care um so yeah i guess this this is this is actually probably a nice example of where the that that those different perspectives sort of fit together quite nicely um, so, so that involves educating parents who may or may not have pain themselves, involves educating teachers who may or may not have pain themselves but are, have people in their care. So, yeah, and, and as I said, I think that's a really key thing that we need to get at initially along with obviously trying to understand, well, okay, for these kids who are, we suspect might have a problem, what do we do for them? I know you're in contact with a lot of the research, so maybe we can kind of dance around some of the myths about kids and pain Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them might revolve around back pain, but not necessarily. Yep. Maybe this is a good way to test my biases too, and in a way, <laughs> backpacks and kids with yep. back pain. Yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, obviously we, I was involved in a big review which came out last year. And yeah, I think we had six, 70 studies or something which had looked at an association between backpack use or weight and pain. and in some ways, this is a really unusual case in the paediatric pain field because there is a lot of research there. And I guess what I certainly would expect, if there was a real and important connection between pain and backpack use, then across that many studies, we'd get some sort of relatively consistent signal. There's always going to be noise, if you like. But what we found was it's pretty much only noise. And when we look at what we think is the most robustly designed studies, there's very little there. And so, yeah, I guess the message or what we sort of took out of that is there's better things to worry about than backpacks. I think we're best to be 
guided by, look, if you've got a kid and they're fine and they put their backpack on and backskilling and backskilling and backskilling me, um, then we'll look what's in your backpack and maybe we can reduce it, whatever else. But as a general rule, and I think this is also one of the things that we, we, we thought that was actually a good news message out of this, parents have got a lot, enough stuff to worry about with their kids. Don't worry about the backpacks. <laughs> right. That's, that's the least thing to worry about is how many, yeah. how many books are in your kid's bag. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. But what about sports? I mean, the amount of people who have said to me, I was a gymnast as a kid, who said, oh, your spine must be trash from doing that sport as a kid. And I, of course, kind of laugh at them. And yeah, said, yeah. The sport probably made me stronger and taught me how to care for my back more than anything else. What's the research say about sports and kids with pain? Sports in particular and physical activity more generally. We don't know. There's some ideas around this this idea of a, a, a U-shaped relationship. So if you do very little, you're more likely to have pain. If you do a hell of a lot, you're more likely to have pain. If you do something in the middle, you're probably best off. There's a little bit of support for that, but not much. The, the studies that have been done are all over the place, basically. It's hard to know, essentially. I think there's some research a little bit more generally that early specialization is potentially not a good idea and so this idea that it's best to expose children probably people generally to a range of activities rather than the same thing over and over again again that seems intuitively pretty reasonable but yeah as, as far as the research on sports and pain it's a bit mixed it, i think there's a suggestion that really focusing kids on high intensity stuff repetitive sort of stuff is probably not a great idea Beyond that, we don't really know. The, the problem with those, those those sorts of studies is they tend to be very small because there's not bags and bags of those sorts of kids. And the other side of this is research which is aimed at understanding risk factors. And when I talk about risk factors, I talk about causal risk factors. So factors which actually cause an outcome is really difficult to do well. It's costly. It takes a long time. It takes enormous resources. And so... In some ways, it's not surprising that the information that we have is not particularly robust. It's relatively easy to collect data from a whole heap of people at one go and then collect some variables in it and look at associations. That's easy. But there's all sorts of problems with interpreting that information in a way which suggests that A is causing B, I guess. Right, right. Yeah. Well, we can go down the list with kids, but I think moving from the quote-unquote kind of like physical biomechanical to like the psychosocial kids mm. going through stress through adolescence can be challenging for kids any impact on that as far as the permanence or the persistence of chronic pain it's very likely that there's an association between the sorts of social and psychological stresses that kids might have in adolescence and the experience of pain whether one causes the other or the other causes one or something else causes both, we really don't know. And the, the issue, and part of the issue is that there are pretty plausible arguments in both directions and also probably plausible arguments that something else does cause both. Interestingly, we're sort of involved in the final touches of a review at the moment, which looks at whether there's a relationship between whether parents have pain, whether the kids of parents who have pain are more likely to have pain. And we sort of found a reasonably reasonably consistent relationship. So if parents have pain, it's more likely that their kids will. Again, as to what the mechanism by which that occurs, we really have no idea. You, know, you could posit a, a genetic argument, I guess, that 
There may be something about that person structurally. You can posit a, a genetic argument which relates to psychology as well. You could posit an argument which is something about the environment that's created within that family unit and so on. So that, this probably speaks to the, the last point that I made, that showing relationships between variables is relatively easy, but understanding causal relationships, which is what we really need to I obviously understand the pathology, but to design really targeted treatments is really difficult. It's very, very difficult difficult research to do and or to do well anyway. Yeah. That's a perfect segue into kind of our next topic. I know another passion of yours is helping clinicians look at the evidence and integrate it into practice. Obviously you're a researcher and it's kind of a sweet spot for you. You know, when I hear that, it's my podcast, so I'll give you my personal opinion on that. Yeah. My first thought is, well, didn't I learn about research in PT school? You know, mm-hmm. we took we took classes and I probably took upwards of two classes, probably worth six credits on Research. I know education varies from US-based schools to other types of schools, but how deep do we really need to understand the research for us to work in in evidence-based practice? I would say the short answer to that is you need to be able to pick up any article and tell whether it's any good or not. And you also need to understand, I noticed you mentioned it before, I'll test my own biases, you also need to have an, um, an appreciation of what they are and how they relate to whatever it is that you're reading. I guess my experience in talking to some people about research is that I don't think generally the understanding that a lot of clinicians have of research methods is sufficient to appraise a study that's sitting in front of them. And what that does, I think, is... What it means is it just makes you so much more susceptible to interpreting something on the basis of your own biases as opposed to interpreting something on the basis of the quality of the evidence that's presented. So maybe we have a a different view of what I think generally the competence of a lot of clinicians is in in terms of understanding evidence. And certainly some of the surveys that have been done have uh, identified that lack of skill as a barrier to engaging or consuming evidence well, I guess. Yeah. It's interesting because I was doing some research recently, like PhD programs and looking at them. And mm-hmm. from what I can see, these are, these are US-based programs. Most of them yeah. want you to do about 12 to 15 credits in biostatistics and evidence-based type of research classes to kind of prepare you for your research and your dissertation. The average PT program, the average DPT program in the US has six credits built into the program of mm-hmm. research. So as a DPT in the US, we're getting at least six credits. Of mm. course, if you want to go on to your PhD and do formal research, obviously you need more training. But yeah. I guess my question as a practitioner, because I'm mostly a practitioner, is the onus on me as a practitioner to understand research? Mm-hmm. Or is it on the researcher to skillfully write their paper in a way that I can understand it and makes the points of the research clear and maybe points out, hey, this is what I discovered. This is what I know. This is what we don't know. And here's how you can now use that. Let's see where you're coming from. I guess in an ideal world, that would be the case. But <laughs> the, the, the reality of, and this is, not a, this is not to excuse poor practice in, amongst researchers, but the reality of working research is that there's some perverse incentives which result in a lot of stuff being published which is not relevant and not of good quality and a lot of stuff which is misinterpreted. 
And so that's the environment or the situation that clinicians have to work in. From my point of view, I take my responsibility very seriously of to present research in a way which is faithful to the research. I can make that commitment myself, but that's, as I said, that in short, there's a lot of garbage out there. And at the end of the day, clinicians got to sift through that garbage. Totally. I mean, I appreciate you saying that because it can be a challenge. Yep. I mean, even if yep. you're looking at a meta-analysis, there can be personal judgment and personal bias even wrapped up in a meta-analysis, which technically is the top of the pyramid as far as research is concerned. Mm-hmm. That's what I, I, like, I would love to see. I would love to see like a paper on that. Like, how do yep. you kind of like read between the lines and figure out where someone's personal bias might be in the research? That I think is super interesting. So I guess this is where I agree with you completely. And, and, and I guess my take on that is the way for you to learn that or the way for people to learn that is to understand the method. And so if as a consumer of research, you understand best practice, and, and again, I'll just touch on you, you know, you mentioned meta-analysis is, is at the top of the evidence tree. You need to understand why that is. And also the fact that just because it's called a meta-analysis and therefore it's at the top of the tree, doesn't mean it provides worthwhile evidence. And so everything needs to be appraised. And so I think there's obviously there's issues with that evidence hierarchy because it doesn't overcome the problem of poor studies. So you can have a poor study of a design which is by any other measure robust, still a poor study. And that's what clinicians need to understand. It's not enough to know that, well, that evidence tree. Yeah. What needs to come through is, well, why? Why is it that, well, first of all, why does that tree exist? What is it about those study designs which puts things above or below whatever else it is? And then you still need to go into that study and read it and understand the method and understand what's good and bad about it. I guess the way that, the way that I like to think about this is as a clinician, as a person, we have information which comes from all different sorts of sources. And so if a clinician standing in front of a patient, you have information from your training. You have information which comes from the person in front of you in, which you interpret and you interpret what they say and, and the way they're moving and the way that they're looking and, and all this sort of stuff. And you have some skills in that which are developed by being a person amongst other people. So they, they're sources of information. And the whole time you're, you're appraising those sources of information. You're trying to think, what does this mean? And why, you know, what, could I be wrong about this? And could I be right about this? How should I interpret it? It's no different for research evidence. It's just another source of information which comes in. The difference is that there's a framework for helping you decide what's worthwhile and what's not. So you do that automatically for other sorts of information. You don't do it automatically for research because we're not as familiar with that sort of stuff. And so, as as I said, I, I don't see evidence, as we call it, as any different to another source of information. It's all information which we need to put together. And I think this is the fallacy of evidence-based practice that it wants to turn everyone into a robot and just do, make all treatment via a cookbook. My view is to be an evidence-based practitioner is much harder because it forces you then to appraise all these sources of information, including this other source as well. You don't get to just bring that in and stick it over the top of it. It's not, it was never the idea of it. The idea is it, it's practice which is informed by the best available research and it's informed by it. It's not directed by it. And as I said, what's the alternative of that? 
The alternative to that is not informed by the best available research. Why would you do that? To me, that doesn't make sense to practice in a non-evidence-based practice way if that's what we understand by it. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I guess, has my view on. So do you think pain research is interesting because if a, if a practitioner is involved, it can be very difficult to blind them, which can make a study difficult. Do you think we need to do more qualitative type of research versus the quantitative type, which seems to be more prevalent, I'd say, in the, in the PT research? Research design and obviously quantitative versus qualitative research is a broad aspect of research design. It matters because it's relevant to the question. So whether or not you use a qualitative or a quantitative study or an RCT or a cohort study or, or a diagnostic test actually depends on the question. So if there are questions which are outstanding, which are important, which we need to get at, which require a qualitative design, then, yeah, we need to do more qualitative research. If we think the questions that are important are of some other nature, then we need a different design. So the answer to that question depends on what the specific question is. So if do we need to know more about the experience of individuals who have pain and the impact of that in their lives? Yeah, probably do. Yeah. That's what I was kind of leaning toward because we don't have a whole lot of studies like that as far as, because when we talk about evidence-based practice, it's obviously what the research is saying, it's what the practitioner is doing or feels comfortable doing, and then there's what the patient values. Yep, for sure. And, you know, do we really know what the patient values at at this point? I personally think that's the biggest part of the three-legged stool there that we're missing as far as pain goes. Like we're researching all these wonderful things, but what does the patient really want? Like if the patient wants, like if the patient wants to know, does CBD oil work? Yes or no? Mm-hmm. And you're a PT and you're ignoring that. Then mm-hmm. you're not working through evidence-based informed practice, basically. Look, I mean, at, a, at a, probably at an even more fundamental level, if you're trying to deliver something which is completely contrary to whatever the patient believes, they're not going to engage with it anyway. So at some point it becomes pointless. Which is interesting uh, to think about because even because when we talk about bias and personal professional bias, even in research bias, I love exercise. I preach it all day long. So do you. The, the research supports it for a lot of different types of conditions. There's pretty good research on it. But I think a lot of patients would tell you, I don't want to move. I don't want to exercise. What's hmm. the other alternative? So it's an interesting kind of paradox we have ourselves in as practitioners. However, I do think as you look at lifestyle, you could say, well, okay, exercise and diet, exercise and meditation, yep. and stress reduction. So yeah, look, I agree with you. But I guess it, this probably comes to the question of where where the responsibility of the clinician lies. So is it just to say, this is what's good for you, this is what you should do. If, if that's it, job done, okay? But if it's, and I think in the chronic disease space, we come to this idea now that this is about getting people to change behaviour, okay? And chronic pain is similar. It's about getting the beha- people to behave in a certain way. Well, I think as a researcher, the onus is on us to work out, well, if we know just telling people to exercise doesn't work, then we need to do something different. And so the, the, that different is, is what we need to work out. And so that and there's certainly there's whole frameworks around behavior change sort of stuff. So psychologists have been doing this stuff. They have frameworks for this. sort of What are the barriers? What are the enablers? How do we address them and all that sort of stuff? And I think that's where chronic disease research needs to go. And so there is stuff around, well, there's stuff around knowledge, there's stuff around beliefs. And so they're, they're, I think they're the sorts of things or the directions that we need to be working in. Yeah. So you are, since you're passionate about it, you're writing a, a column in Jobs. Is that correct? Is it, is it monthly? That's right. 
yeah, that's yeah. Well, every second month now. So originally they're every month, but every second month now. And 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 look, I guess this is building on this of what we talked about before about the idea that I think oftentimes clinicians need a little bit of a bit more support in terms of understanding how to interpret research to be sort of I guess what I'd call more effective consumers of research. For me, I think that the nice thing about teaching in this space is I think the concepts are pretty simple and I think they're pretty easily understandable by clinicians generally. It's just about a way of trying to find a way to deliver that information in a way that people want to and can interact with. Something uh, sort of just, I guess, come to mind, I guess part of, and this was something I witnessed when I was going through physio um, doing my degree. As students, I don't think it was made clear to us that understanding research was part of the job. So those research subjects are something to be got through and we'll get through them and then we can learn the stuff we need to know about treating patients. And so I think potentially, yes, there may be the content delivered in different programs, but I'm not convinced, I guess, that uh, clinicians generally have engaged with it and taken on board what I think is important to take on board. So I guess this column is really an attempt to try and deliver this information, which is a bit more palatable. I don't know if it's the right way to do it. It's probably one way of doing it. Maybe it'll resonate with some people, not with others. There's probably a whole, yeah, I probably need to deliver it in whole different type sorts of ways for different people. But yeah, that's I've read yeah. through them. So one, well, I'll link to these in the show notes. The first one is called Evidence in Practice, a new series for clinicians. Uh, it's yep. actually editorial. In the June 2018, volume 48 of the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. And then another one, which is really cool, is called Engaging with Research, Linking Evidence with Practice. And that's June of 2018. Two great articles. So we'll link to those in the show notes. People can check them out. And of course, if you subscribe to the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy, yeah. you can look out for that. Sorry, could I just say, if, if anyone is interested or wants to get hold of them and can't, just contact me. And that goes for anything of mine. I'm always happy to send. Always happy if someone reads what I've written. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I'm sure a lot. Of, I'm sure a lot of clinicians appreciate that because as they're, as they're trying to keep the research, having access to it is, is beneficial. Yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a problem. Yeah, it's it's a problem with the, with the model we have at the moment. Just, but yeah, certainly if yeah, I'm very very happy to get emails from people saying, "Can you send me something?" And and I'll, it, it takes no time for me. It's very easy. I'm very happy to do it. Excellent. I, I, every time I interview someone for a podcast, I say, hey, send me like your most recent article or an article you want to talk about because it's a great way for me to prepare for an interview. Yep. So thanks for doing that. So Steve, it's been great chatting with you. I can't wait to learn more about what you have going on in the, in the world of pediatrics. I know that's a, a growing um, yep. field and I'll look out for the evidence in practice. Um, but tell people how they can learn more about you. If you have a, a website or a Twitter handle you want to point people to. Uh, yeah, so I'm on Twitter, which is just at Steve Camper one. We have a website. So myself and Chris Williams, who I guess that we've sort of bring together the research that we do in this sort of pain and lifestyle field under a sort of umbrella, which is called the Center for Pain, Health and Lifestyle. We have a website, which is a little bit under construction, but it, there's some stuff on there. Yeah, look, I, I have the, there's, I have a website through the University of Sydney as well, if, if people are interested, but as I said, I'm, I'm very happy to get emails from people who want to know, want papers or want to know something about what I might know about. And I'm also very happy to tell you if I don't know about that. So yeah, happy to be contacted if that helps. 
Excellent. Great. So you can reach out to Steve at Steve Camper One. That's Steve uh, Camper spelled with a K, K A M P R One. That's his Twitter handle. He'll be happy to connect with you, share his research, and point you to the right website so you can learn more. I want to thank all of you for being on the podcast or joining us on the podcast this week. Make sure you friend, share this episode with your friends and family on social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and we'll see you next week on the Healing Pain Podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jay. Thank you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast. For more information on this episode and access to links discussed, please visit drjotada.com and click on the podcast tab where you will find the blog post for this and all previous episodes and can sign up for Dr. Joe Tata's email list to receive the latest information on chronic pain. Also, make sure to stay connected on his Facebook page at Dr. Joe Tata. 